0: I have a long history of being a quitter. In fourth grade, I couldn't solve a math problem. The teacher was busy helping other students, and I got so frustrated that I declared I was quitting math by throwing my ruler up into the air and stomping back to my desk. The problem was the ruler struck the overhead fluorescent light, glass exploding and falling down onto the heads of my classmates. In high school, I was on the football team. I had been playing for several years but something hit me one day in practice just before the season started. I didn't want it anymore. I walked off the field, went back into the locker room and left my uniform and equipment behind. Less than a week later I went back on bended knee begging to be allowed back on the team. Cut to my early twenties. I'm part of a group at an improv theater. I had been there for about two years and the artistic directors of the theater were about to make everybody re-audition for their positions in the group. I thought I could read the writing on the wall, so I arrived at the next rehearsal and announced to everybody I was quitting, and I walked away. As I entered my late twenties, I found myself in this job for five years. Didn't like the way I was being treated, so I quit. No new job to slide into, just the abyss of unemployment. A few years after that, I abruptly quit another job in order to pack up and move to Los Angeles to become a rich and famous writer. A decade passes, I'm in a theater administrative job, I wanted out, and had a feeling my boss wanted the same thing. I was so close to quitting and moving to Chicago, but then got laid off. And moved to Chicago. In the early days of the subtext back in Los Angeles, I wanted to quit about 10 times, and each time Danny Oliver would talk me off the cliff. I've had that feeling off and on with the podcast in recent years. But Paula Vogel planted in my head words I hold on to like a captain wrapping arms around a ship's mast in a storm. 2022 has been hitting different though. My playwriting and podcast producing lives have intersected and not in the ways I'd hoped for. Over on my Twitter account, I've been complaining about this quite a bit. Just the other day I had what I'm calling my Howard Beale moment. I've always had a problem with compartmentalization. My feelings intertwine with my work. For this work, this podcast, I lead with my identity as a playwright. I declare it at every turn, and it's because I know if I don't, I would only be seen as the podcaster who interviews playwrights, and not as a playwright myself. And unfortunately, it seems like that's what is starting to happen now. Theaters will engage me in this way, but not that way. And not just theaters, but theater-associated people in general, and other playwrights, too. I've started to realize many folks see me as an opportunity to advance their goals, and not as an artist myself in search of opportunity. Yet I'm out here waving my playwright flag. And it all got very hard to swallow lately. Howard Beale lost his shit and went on a long monologue declaring he's mad as hell, and... And this was going to be my... I can't take it anymore moment. I thought back on all those moments from my past. All of them were emotional reactions. But more than that, they each left me with a deep pool of regret. When I exploded in a whiny string of complaints on Twitter, many folks said supportive and helpful things. It honestly did make me feel better. But it's the emotional memories from my artless history that is keeping me tethered to my work as a playwright. I still have a lot of plays to write. And you should see the list of playwrights I am going to talk to for this thing. When the subtext ends, I want it to be a celebration, not a defeat. So here's where I am at the moment. I'm not mad as hell. I'm emotional. And the, I can't take it anymore. Well, I need to wrestle with the it part some more. That's life though, right? We all have emotions. We all have an it we struggle with. That's not necessarily the message of the movie Network or what Howard Beale was screaming about, but it's where I landed. Today, I am contemplative as hell, and I can take it just fine. Tomorrow will be different, and so will the day after that, and so on. Most importantly, though, I am not quitting anything. Hello, everybody. This is the Subtext Podcast. I am Brian James Polak. This month on the Subtext, I share a conversation I recorded with Jeremy Cohen about a year ago. Jeremy is the Artistic Director of Playwright Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The reason for this long delay is because my original idea was to somehow combine the Heather Raffo episode we released a couple weeks ago with my conversation with Jeremy. Since Heather's episode was taking... Uh, A very long time to complete, Jeremy's episode just sort of got stuck sitting there patiently waiting. For those of you listening for the first time, The Subtext is a podcast where a playwright, me, talks to another playwright about life, writing, and what makes us tick. You can subscribe to The Subtext on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple Podcasts. If you're into social media stuff, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Insta, Rate Review share, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, oh, we do have a phone number where you can leave us a voice message. Uh, give us a ring. I promise I will not pick up. The number is 505-302-1235. Jeremy Cohen is in his 11th season as producing artistic director at the Playwright Center. Having previously served as associate artistic director and director of new work at Hartford Stage, he's also the founding artistic director of Naked Eye Theatre Company in Chicago Also, a theater director. Jeremy has directed all over the country. A couple years ago, he did Angels in America in St. Louis, and I am still kicking myself over not getting there to see it. He's currently under commission on a co written play with Dipakagua, a playwright I very much want to have on the subtext. This conversation was recorded on June 4th, 2021, over Zoom.
1: We moved to Minneapolis in uh, the summer of 2010, and so uh, this is my 11th. I'm just finishing my 11th year in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
0: What, so was the was the move because you got the job at Playwright Center?
1: Yeah, I was at um, uh, Hartford Stage as the associate artistic director for about eight years, and my brilliant, brilliant predecessor, Pete Parle, uh and I had been talking about sort of what the next steps might be for the organization, and they were in the middle of a search. And I kind of uh, was wondering about a move for myself, not fully outside of producing theater, but finding a way to be um, more part of a direct artist community, an artist support kind of service community. And, you know, I think the position is As Carl really laid it out in so many ways, and then, you know, as we sort of launched HowlRound and and all the other stuff that happened that year, um, you know, a a lot of it was about how we could play a bigger role in the field in some way and about trying to figure out how to take care of the field. Todd uh, London had written Outrageous Fortune, which was, you know, having all those ripple conversations coming out. So, um, yeah, I just got really excited about the idea of sitting in a different place in the field. And being in relation to new work, sure, but really being in relation to playwrights as artists and as artist leaders, um, and playwrights in a really, I think, seen the, the proposition was, could this organization really become a place, an artist-centered organization um, that could really center art making and advocacy and activism kind of at its core, um,
0: and that's kind of who I am. What was, the, what was the organization's focus prior to that?
1: Um, I think the, even prior to Carl, the, um, you know, the first, so we're 49 years old now, um, and I would say the first, I'm making it up 20 years or so, was really about its, its own formation. It just kind of kept forming and reforming in a way. Um, at the core of it was always about writers coming together in support of one another, uh, hearing each other's work, responding to each other's work. Um, And the other piece that I think that's kind of specific to Playwright Center is that in its very early days, uh, then Cindy Garrick, who was then the head of the Jerome Foundation, um, had a conversation with Playwright Center leadership to say, what if we started offering fellowships out of of the Jerome Foundation, and if the Playwright Center was the first to you know, do that with us. And so very early on in the in the history, these fellowships, these paid fellowships started. I mean, they were a thousand bucks, you know, in, in the first days. Um, but they were also both enabling, you know, all the amazing writers, you know, who have come through the center, the, the Barbara Fields and the Jeff Hatchers and the um, you know, ugly blessings and, you know, all these amazing people, Carlisle Brown, et cetera. But there are also, you know, people like August Wilson, who were really poets at the time here, um, having a home like at Penumbra, the incredible Penumbra Theater here and meeting and, and thinking about what would that language mean to move from, uh, from poetry into, into, into drama. And, um, uh, so, so those fellowships really became a, a critical part of who we were. Um, I think in the second half of our of our history, um, leaders like Carl were really trying to reckon with um how do we move from solely being a local, a more of a locally based organization, right? We don't think in New York, if something's in New York, the local is like, well, it's not local or regional, it's New York. Um, and that's really where most of those great centers, in particular new dramatists, was who had started about 20 years before the center. So I think it's always, even the other day, someone was saying the Minnesota Playwright Center. And I'm like, oh, I love that it's in Minnesota. I would not have it any other way, thank God. Here's all the great, brilliant things about it. But I would say that um, over the last 20 years, there's been a real movement towards how can we play an even bigger role, not only to support playwrights who are Minnesota-based, but also to think about playwrights in the bigger uh, National and international ecosystem, and then I think my time is probably focused a lot on taking the great work that Carl started to really and, and others to really think about how we connect with the larger field. What is the role of playwrights and playwriting in relation to the producing theater or presenting theater field, academic fields, etc.?
0: I'm interested to hear more about that, but I think I wanna I wanna connect to that later. So, where did you grow up? in
1: Connecticut, like, or did, where did you grow up originally? Yeah. Um, I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts. So I'm a hippie activist in the blood. Um, my first memory of, you know, um, babysitters are people like Len Berkman and Zach Berkman and going with my babysitters on bikes on bikes, marches through town. That was my, that was babysitting. You know, that was, that was how I grew up. Um, very much running with scissors is very much about you know, Augustine growing up in Amherst, Northampton, Hadley in in the '70s and '80s, um, and I'm I. It is fundamentally a deep part of who I am today. Getting back to that sort of activist activism part, um, it's been hard for me. I I didn't. I don't, I don't have anyone in the arts in my background. I come from a very um, kind of broken home, working class background. And so it wasn't like a, I'm gonna do theater when I grow up. It wasn't a, I, I went to theaters. I went to, you know, that, that was not my, my path at all. It was really um, that I thought I was gonna be doing a lot of social services work. That's really where I imagined my life being in some way. Um, yeah. what,
0: what sort of connected you to social service work when you were, when you were young?
1: Um, I mean, the calling piece of it is like that part. That's like, I just want to help people. I just want to be useful in this world. Um, and I think that idea of service, like I couldn't have identified it as a young person in that way, but, um, that you are part that you are a citizen of the world was something that, um, for better or worse really became like, just like what I wrapped the blanket around for myself. And the different things I would pursue.
0: I grew up like 50 miles north, maybe less than 50 miles north of Amherst in, in Keene, New Hampshire. Oh. and where so in my growing up, there was a, there seemed to be like three groups of people, and and everybody in high school had to fit into one. Of these groups. It just sort of I mean maybe not literally, but it really seemed that way. And it was like people played sports, people, uh, or people did chorus and theater and and played in musical instruments, and then there were stoners. Uh-huh. And it felt like these were the buckets. And there's like intersections and, and crossing over, but uh I'm wondering if you know we didn't grow up that far from each other and we're we're in New England where it's different, but not too different. I'm wondering what it was like for you.
1: Yeah. Um ooh, uh, well I would say there's like it splits into a couple, into two parts. Uh, the first part is the Amherst part, um, where is is kind of what we talked about a moment ago. And 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 um I don't think I was aware that much of people being different in the world. Um, I was aware that sometimes I'd go on play dates or whatever, play with friends and I'd be like, oh, they have two parents, that's so weird. Or, you know, whatever, just very different. Um, My family was very different and my upbringing was very different. Um, And I raised my younger brother a lot growing up, Um, but not in a who I was in the world, other than I also knew not knowing you know, sort of in the 70s and 80s as a kid, really like what queerness was, I just knew that there was something that I was different than other kids in some kind of way. And there were some really important people in the Amherst, which is now a very complicated and perhaps a story that I don't know gets to go on this about um, ways in which some important people came into my life in a really incredible time and made a big difference um, in helping me think about that, of which I will I will minimally lift up. Um, Dr. Camille Cosby as someone who, she was the smartest, most brilliant, amazing person I knew. And I just knew I wanted to be like her. Um, so that I would say was like, that was like my first childhood hero in
0: a mm-hmm.
1: way. Um, not uncomplicated. And, um, and then I would say, um, and then we moved to Connecticut for like junior high school and high school. And it was radically different. And partially that was because I was like sick for a year. And I remember like a child therapist or adolescent therapist saying to like um, my mom at some point, honestly, a big part of what I can sense right now is that you seem to have moved him away to a place where there's only white people and he's really sick about it. He really doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to relate to them. And that's strange because your kid is white. But um, I just identify that to say that being in a place of homogeny, whether it was about clickiness in, in high school or what group I was in, I, I perhaps my lens into theater was always like performing a version of yourself and I feel like I talked to a lot of other queer kids, trans kids. I feel like I talked to other um, kids in general who always will just talk about how do you, you know, the, the performance of self and how long that happened and what that meant and then how did that play out in your future life. So, so that's that's where there was. And then I I I moved out of my house early on in, in in high school and stuff. And then I and then I got into college. And that was out in Ohio at Oberlin College, um, where it was just great. It was amazing.
0: At what point did you start to connect
1: with an artistic self? Um, definitely in high school. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> um, I did theater a lot in high school, um, because I could. And cause I, every sport I tried, I was terrible at, and uh, it wasn't like, I want to do theater when I grow up. It was really like uh, whatever making, I, I like making magical gifts. That's why I make theater. I like making magical gifts that connect with people in real time, that's kind of my jam. And I could make lots of magical gifts that totally made people laugh, made people sob. They were difficult conversations to talk about. I was doing a lot of writing then and stuff. And um, and I was directing already then. And I just was like, let's go, let's do this. That's the world I wanna live in. And I would say there were two artists in particular um, at the end of high school who really led that path for me, again, who weren't theater artists, but both uh, Robert Applethorpe and Andre Serrano, um, because the whole NEA thing was sort of happening at the time. And uh, the Mapplethorpe exhibit was at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. And we used to go after school, me and some friends, and it's like my first, so my first run-ins with the law? Sure, let's go with, it was my first run-ins with the law where you know cops would come and we would protest the protesters and. I would try to like make out with boys, even though I was pretending to be straight, just so that the protesters would get upset and then the cops would get pissed off and I'd want to start a fight. And I was like, you know, fuck it. yeah, yeah, not, let's go. You know, like love is great, you know, all of the things. And as I was coming into my own queerness, it was, you know, the height of the AIDS crisis. And um, I felt in my skin when I could think about those ideas that felt so charged and full to me, around around how art was made and who artists were and how that connected to the art of theater making which was just the way that made sense for me live performance Um, and so the so as soon as i went to college really quickly those things kind of hyper existed together i couldn't figure out how to separate them or live just in just in theater or just in kind of um, activism or social work Um, and i did both a lot in college
0: you mentioned when you
1: were uh, in high
0: school, you you were doing some writing. What 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 form did your writing take?
1: Oh my god, bad is the fun <laughs> The writing, took, friend, bad, uh, really drama queeny, and. Um, I just needed to, God, I just need, honestly, I just needed a place to be able to put the first 16, 17 years of some pretty traumatic shit. I just needed a place to put it. And I, and I, and I wanted it seen and I, I wanted people accountable for the stuff that had happened, honestly, in real terms, I'd love to tell you that it came out of artistic expression and it wasn't all directly autobiographical, but it definitely was, um, if you think about a movement like the ACT UP movement, which sort of says, I'm not going quietly, right? We're gonna have these live funerals in public spaces, all the ways that that sort of laid out. Um, that for me, that I, the idea of um, documentation or um, articulation or like naming that a thing is true and happening, Instead of like a president who's wiping it away and saying like those people are dying, then we're not going to do anything about it, but those people are dirty, so they don't count. For me, it was that theater became a way of that kind of testimony of of documentation. Um, so that felt really important to me. I think that's how I plugged those things in.
0: How did how did how did it become theater? Like like was there a was there a person or or a teacher or a moment where? It was like, oh, maybe theater is the avenue where I can do these things.
1: I definitely went to Hartford Stage, uh, in my, weirdly, as, as, a, as a high school senior. Um, and I saw Dr. Adesha May Holland's uh, piece from the Mississippi Delta. And I saw Marvin's Room, uh, Scott Scotty McPherson's piece. And um, those two plays, those two experiences, I mean, I wouldn't say like, I went to a play. I, I sort of didn't really know I just went and they, especially from the Mississippi Delta was like my whole, and I was standing in the back for both of them because I couldn't afford tickets. My whole body just like revolted on itself and sort of reinvented itself. All the electrons kind of realigned. And were like, Hey, by the way, this is also a way to live a life is by making that art. And I had a hunger and a ferociousness for doing what those artists were doing in terms of how they told story in live space. And I mentioned that because to say that I got to come back as an adult and make a number of plays and productions over the years there, there was never a day in rehearsal or tech or previews or watching the run. I I would always watch it from the back of the house. I watched it like the kid. Because I sort of wanted to make it for that next generation of people who might not make theater for a living. I don't really care if you make theater or if you love theater, but that something awakens in you and that tells you you're not alone. And that is like a weird magic gift that you and I know theater can create. Um, And when I see pieces by Alicia Harris or I see pieces by Harris and David Rivers or I see pieces by any of the, of course, the the writers that I love, Louis Louis Sofaro and, you know, Naomi Wallet, I mean, Timberlake, all of these people is just, Carol Churchill, my whole world blew open um, because I thought, oh, that's actually, that's the activism that feels most exciting to me to do right now, you know. Do you
0: remember after seeing those plays and feeling inspired and feeling like this is a path I can go down. This is, this is the thing I can do. Did you start to consume? I mean, you just, you just mentioned, you know, Namie Wallace and many amazing playwrights. Did you, are these the writers you started to consume after that to sort of like figure yourself out or find your voice in the theater?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, again, I, I, with, with great fortune, did I get, to through many different means, get to Oberlin and study. And like my sophomore, I went away my junior year, which I mention. but like my sophomore year was like, I directed Baltimore Waltz and I just created like a junior thesis my sophomore year. Um, and it was it was like Paula, I talk about it with Paula all the time. I and mean, I can tell you who was in it. I can tell you the moves. I can repeat lines, you know what I mean? Like of, of that and she's, um, it just opened something in me again, and so they always felt like doors opening in terms of um, who and how I was connecting Naomi was absolutely the same and in college a lot was timber like warden Baker was also very much the same in terms of. Um, our country's good and in terms of other pieces, she was rec- rec- you know wrestling with in terms of myth pieces Greek pieces. Um, and and then I. And my, when I was back my senior year, I directed um, I directed Our Country's Good and I directed uh, Martin Sherman's Bent um, with some great pals um, in a found space, like with like wire and hand lights that we found. And um, so it was like a teaching and a reteaching and a retraining. I, I would also give huge credit to, I was, um, I'm a recovering alcoholic And in 19, so let's see, I graduated in 95. So in 93, 94, I was away my junior year. And the director of the, I was at The O'Neill for a year at the National uh, Theater Institute, which is, I still credit with my whole life. Um, but the director at the time, it's now the amazing Rachel Jett, the, the director at the time, um, was a British gentleman named Richard Digby day. And he still teaches there on occasion. Um, he is credited with directing more Shaw than any living director in England. And, um, he is the opposite human of me and taught me a lot of what I know. Two things were happening that year that were really important. Um, one was that he said there is a piece called Chopping and Fucking. And there is a playwright named Mark Ravenhill in, in London. And um, this is your thing. And I'm going to get it for you. And then you're going to read it and you're going to understand all your next moves. Um, and really helped sculpt um, my thinking about that play and about other plays in terms of what it means to what does it mean to be a director? What is what are the different kinds of thoughts on that? Um, and the other piece of it was that he threatened to kick me out of NTI because I, uh, I had been I was I was in the height of my alcoholism, and uh, as a junior in college there, and um, uh, he basically sat me down and he said, you know, look, this artist thing is is no joke, and neither is alcoholism, and you are a big fucking drunk, so either you can uh, get sober, and figure out your life and really dedicate yourself to being an artist, or I'm gonna kick you out and you can go back to your school where they don't really want you anyway. So it's up to you. And um, that then I went to my first AA meeting and you know I, that was 1994, so, and I guess it's it, 2021. So, so it worked like that, like that <laughs> one,
0: no, I don't mean like, I don't mean it as a joke. I just mean like, I know sometimes it can be a process for somebody And uh, particularly a young person who, you know, young people tend to be a little bit more stubborn, right? And
1: so it clicked, it clicked for you. It did for me. Yeah, it just made sense. It sort of made sense being an alcoholic, the clarity for myself about that made sense. Like the artist part, like the activist part, the queer part, I was like, oh, I get it. This doesn't have to be a good thing or a bad thing. That's not my job to judge this. This is actually just like, what if I go with this thing is true and then what happens? And then my whole life opened up. And I was like, oh, look at all the not terrible. Let's start with the not terrible things I'm doing. Let's just go with like the possibility of good. and, and it was really scary. I mean, I have, you know, friends of both yours and mine who are in recovery. We'll talk about this a lot. Many people who i kind of over the years have helped support through that initial process in, in the theater field. And, um, we talk about it a lot, which is like, how do you be in a, as if you're a director, how do you be in a rehearsal room sober? If you're an actor, like if you can't get high before you go, like all the things that we, as a writer, you know, oh, I drink my bourbon. Anyway, I have my, the writer's whiskey, kit, whatever, all of the things, all the fetishizing around it. Um, I, it was there was a lot of mourning i mean there was a lot of grieving about being about getting i got sober the day after my 21st birthday and that i had one legal night of drinking which was just like um, and it was like cool so you can have this shit or you can care about that and i decided to go with the good people of southeastern connecticut my first AA meeting was at, an, at the groton naval base and um and, and so saying that I was an alcoholic for the first time felt a lot like kind of having the, the continuation of coming out to myself as an artist, um, to, to feel that that was a thing of value and worth that I should spend some energy on, so that the other parts of my life could make sense. And when I was able to do that as an artist, I was like, oh, I get how to be a dad. And then when I was able to do that as a dad, I got how to do that as a boss. And I do that as a boss, I get how to figure out how to do that as a whatever, you know. So. I think that was where those bricks started. I would hate to in any way credit early like success about it at 21 years old. That wasn't true. I fought it. But I did do it. And that's been meaningful to me as this idea of service, coming back to this idea of service that we were saying earlier, that's been really meaningful to me, um, especially around mental health in the, in the art sector, in the theater field. Um, I'm more out about, about being in recovery than, than understandably other people are sometimes, and many other people are, more and more people are, um, as we recognize mental health as a real thing, not a sort of a stigma. And, uh, and for me, that's been huge because it's not about directing a play sometimes. Sometimes it's about taking a phone call from someone who's really fucking scared to just say, I don't know how to stop. I really need help. I don't know what to do, and I'm afraid if I tell anyone I'm going to get fired. Um, and me having to say, I know, honey, but they already know <laughs> because you're a mess. So let's go, let's do this. Let's go to the mm-hmm. next step. You know, mm-hmm. here we all are. We'll figure it out. So yeah, it's been an interesting, all of those things are an, they're interesting concentric circles for me in a way.
0: Why do you think you became a director? What was it about that when you first started, you said when you first started oh, you in high school, you were already directing things. I'm wondering, so many people, like I talked to playwrights primarily on this, and uh, I would say the vast majority of them started off as actors, didn't really feel it, started to write, and then the writing just sort of took off from there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was acting all the way until my uh, senior year of college, um, in addition to directing. And acting was the thing that felt like it was the excuse so that I could, because you're supposed to. And um, But what did I love about directing? Directing, I, in some ways, like there's like deep answers and there's also like nerd answers. And the nerd answers are like, oh my God, I love actors. I love being in auditions. I love giving direction and seeing if how people take it on their terms. I love people being in a rehearsal hall with actors where I'm challenging them to like find something in a way that they didn't think they could do because it felt too hard or um, like, I love that. I also love design. I love design. I love being in tech. Ask any of the designers I've worked with for 25 years and they will be like, oh, this guy, he loves tech so much. Um, I love it. I love previews. I love previews. Previews are the place where all the best humans with all their talent get to come together in a space. And I am responsible for creating a safe but forward moving space that actually shifts and we learn together what the word better or what the, where, where we wanna leave this project at open at night. And with new work, you know, for me, that's always about centering the playwright because especially if it's a brand new play, Um, it's really them learning the spatial dramaturgy of how, how does this thing behave not in a rehearsal hall or not in a workshop, but how does this exist in space? Um, oh, look, there, we, there was a whole movement sequence thing that just happened there that I didn't anticipate. And it's just taught me everything I wanted to know about my play. I love that moment, whether it gets cut in third preview or not. So in a nerdy way, I kind of love all the parts that directing is. Um, I would say that I've talked with and listened to a number of directors that I really respect and admire over the years to talk about like, how has your process changed? And I would say that my relationship to kind of control is the right word, but like walking in feeling certain about things has gotten less and less over time. And rather that I think my process is more about centering the things I want the ultimate storytelling to contain. And that my work is to like bring the right people in the room, and to guide them through the process towards those things, and also listen and learn a lot more rather than. But in my mind, it was always stage right four feet that way. Or in my mind, this scene always happened in with a lot of face light, you know, or whatever that thing is.
0: Um, do you think? Yeah. Do you think uh, in the early days, in the beginning, that that sense of control is what motivated you to seek out? a role like a director, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned, um, your upbringing, you know, being, um, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, uh, troubled or chaotic, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, you alluded to these things. And I'm wondering if that motivated in you, um, a yearning for control that you could get by taking on the role of director.
1: Yeah. I feel like that's the non-nerdy version. That's the, that's the right. That's right. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I would agree. It's the, it is right. We look for control or we feel out of control in our lives. But, and, and probably in a, I should talk to my therapist about it after this conversation because it's just occurring to me kind of way like, I want to make a magical universe that isn't the one I live in. So I'll make this where people struggle and then everything turns out okay enough in the end kind of thing. Or how does humanity struggle and figure itself out? I think a lot of those questions for me were um, wanting to participate in an active, understanding of how life worked because I grew up in a way that didn't. I I mean, also not to credit anything in like a whatever kind of way, like I think growing up scrappy, um, I feel like looking back, there is a kind of, when I talk about hunger or confidence or cockiness at times for sure, especially when I was younger, um, that a lot of that related to like, Yeah. And if you don't have anything, you just fucking ask for it because what are they going to say? No. Or you get it or you take it. I mean, if you're on food stamp, you know what I mean? Like, it's not a, there's not a like, I wonder how they're going to feel about me. We don't have that kind of, um, yeah, I just wasn't raised with that kind of privilege, ultimately. Like, was like, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna lie to you about where I'm staying so I can get that job, but I'm staying on a friend's couch and I'll tell you I'm staying on a friend's couch because I want to be staying on a friend's couch, but I don't have enough money to pay my rent. So I'm living with four people on a, you know, like, and and I'm not unique in that way. I'm just saying like, there's a, that hunger churns in your gut. And so as we all as artists, I think in particular or any of our vocational, whatever our callings are hit these moments of questioning, I have a pretty, off, I think that now I'm 48. I feel like I have a pretty authentic barometer about like, oh, is it, are you doing this for a bullshit reason? Or are you doing this for a real reason? Like maybe that's one of the only things I've grown up to know a little bit more. You know, um, one of my favorite things I do, which is only once in a while, but I teach at the Mayo Clinic here in, in Minnesota. I teach med students and I teach, um, and this week I actually got to teach uh, radiation oncology students and they were between second year and fifth year residents and the work uh, Dr. Joanna Ryan is, is the head of is one of the heads uh, Dan Flavin is one of the other heads of this of this whole humanity center there at Mayo that's brilliant but one of the things that I can then reckon with when I'm working with radonk students who are like literally coming from you know cancer diagnosis room to like in a room with me to talk about like storytelling and narrative and empathy and connection is um these questions kind of that are somewhat about narrative but they're also how do you sustain um and that that's not a like once you've answered it you figure it out right i I can Mm -hmm. imagine you've had moments in your life knowing you for a long time and your life that there have been moments where you're like do i keep doing this thing Mm -hmm. or do i do it here or i just thought that was supposed to be people kept telling me that's what like that ladder climb looked like so i was supposed to want to do that but I don't feel joy. I'm miserable right now. Or, holy crap, that thing makes me feel way better than I thought it was. And I can talk passionately about that thing. Why don't I just go follow that for a while? And how does that play out as a writer, you know, um, or, 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 a theater maker um, is really exciting to me.
0: How I'm curious to talk about the, the, the teaching uh, at the clinic. What's the pitch for the practical application of learning the storytelling narrative to these students.
1: Um the the pitch is I'm going to you are being asked and I would say you know teaching during COVID to med students is like, you know, I mean you're there, right? Like you're not, they're they're like, I'm gonna leave your classroom or whatever we're in, Zoom room, and we're gonna and we're going into it. We are mm-hmm. choosing to go right into it right now. No vaccinations, everyone dying like here we go. And these kids are like in their 20s, you know, and kids they're in their 20s. They're doctors. They're ten times smarter than. I am. In any case, and but but they're but they're kind of like at the edge of a cliff, and they're like I'm choosing to jump with a with a good safety net, but like a kind of uncertain safety net in kind of 2020 21. The pitch for me is you are being asked to do the impossible. So somehow, in your spirit as an artist, how you practice medicine, you are being asked to show up for yourself and other people on a daily basis, and sometimes in impo- what can feel like impossible ways. And sometimes you're gonna feel like you are subsidizing your your medical practice, your, practice, your practitioner um, in ways that are not acceptable to you anymore and, and are too far. And sometimes you're gonna push yourself to be in the scariest moments you've been in or the most exciting discovery moments you've been in. And what I wanna do is talk about the art of writing a piece of theater. And now I'm going to have you write a piece of theater in the next 45 minutes. And then you're going to share it with your medical colleagues about this piece of theory. And I do a bake-off. I do a Paula, Paula Bogle bake-off with them, with these med students. And I give them some ingredients and we go and like, they are sobbing and they're hugged in their Oh my God. And they're like, I have to go off screen. Like I haven't had a, oh my God. I, now I know why I'm a doctor, you know, like all those kind of moments. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know anything about medicine. What I know is, it's really important to us that you figure out your artistic practice as a medical practitioner. So I wanna help remind you that who you are, your lived experience, what you bring to the table is valuable. Like there's real clear practice things you need to learn in an objective way, because it's science and medicine, but like who Brian is as a medical practitioner is different than who Jeremy is as a medical practitioner because of who we are and how we come to the table. Where, Where is that useful? how do you live into that and figure out who you want to be? Because we need, because that idea of sustainability is kind of learning that more and more for me over time. So it's, it's, it's deeply moving to me in a very spiritual way. You know.
0: Yeah. That's really, it's so, that's really lovely. And to think about, you know, I use the word practical, like what's the practical application because for some reason I felt like there needs to be, and I, and now listening to you, it's really seems like, the grounding this this must give them in 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 their own lives for a moment to step out of being in it as you were talking about like they're in it especially during the pandemic to be able to step out of that ground themselves in something even if they're not going out after this class and applying the storytelling things that they are learning like they are so they must they must really be getting something like deeply important to them internally, right? Just to their own humanity as they then go back into life.
1: One of my students this week is a third-year radiation oncology student, and she's interested in pediatric oncology. And we were in the middle of this exercise, and she wrote this piece about, I mean, in, in like 20 minutes. Just coming out of a pediatric rad like learning, like out in the hospital hall, came in, took her mask off, like we were learning. And she wrote a piece about medical practitioners and suicide and about a close friend of hers who took her own life. And, you know, she's a third year, there's fifth year, fourth years, other third years, at least that bigger group of people have been in, in practice with her for this whole time. And of course, didn't know this information. And I will just say that a couple people wrote, as they tend to do after, emailed me just to say, "I am just like you know, class is over. If you need anything to process, I'm here. Let me know." <laughs> and um, and a couple people wrote and were like, "Just, just how that shifted my belief about the relationship between science and medicine, and emotional self care, and kind of." Um, notions about like competition and expectation and how those things work together totally got blown open in that class that class was 55 minutes long and including the plays they wrote and shared it was crazy but i don't know i kind of feel like whether i'm doing it in theater or whether i'm doing it you know at an hiv clinic as a counselor or whether i'm doing it in a rape crisis Clinic as a, as a counselor, all of which have also been my experience. Those things feel all of a piece to me in some way, even though making theater is really different, but it's why I think I've never chosen that path of like, I'm going to go to New York and try to direct that blah, blah, blah. Like, I know that's not my path. I think I had to just, I had a big coming out moment. I broke up with my agent at the time was when I had a baby. I was just like, I don't want to be that person. I can't believe, it was like terrifying because I was like, I just don't think that's me. I don't think that's the career I'm chasing. But I just didn't know if there was another one.
0: Is that what you started to do coming out of undergrad? Like, were you like, I have to do the New York become a New York director thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I had a year long uh, internship at the Goodman um, in casting, which was incredible because I got to know all 200 theater companies. Most of whom, as you know, are run by actors. So I met everyone. I went to every show. It was amazing. Uh, went on to Steppenwolf, and that was the, uh, right around when Martha had, Levy had taken over and and she really became that sort of, you know, Bob Falls had and then kind of Martha um, had become that next mentor. And, um, and ultimately when I then started a theater company there uh, in Chicago, you know, first Bob, and Rock, and then Martha, you know, had really given us the space. They've made us one of the companies in residence, and those were primarily all new work. And as we were figuring it out, and that um, that path, and I had gotten an agent at that point in New York, and I was starting to direct regionally a bit. And I was like, okay, but God, I love this Chicago place. I love Chicago theater. I love it here. I don't want to leave. Um, uh, very quickly, we were the first same-sex couple to adopt through the major agency in Chicago, in Evanston. And they told us that the process would be a year, uh, for straight couples, it's about a year to two years. And they had no idea for us, probably four to five years. Um, I had just gotten a TCG directing fellowship that existed at the time. So I was feeling like, yes, okay. I'm chasing this thing there's apparently this musical that they're making of that play spring awakening that I love so much from doing it in college and. i'm supposed to go ad on it on this workshop at the last workshop of it like I guess i'm going to do this life that I just didn't imagine for myself. Um, And 10 days after we put our paperwork in um, a woman came in and uh, to the agency and said i'm nine months pregnant i'm having a C section tomorrow morning at 7am and I need to find parents. Uh, and that was monday tuesday she had him uh, wednesday she officially chose us and he came home on monday and in fact if you ask bob if you ask bob and cat uh, falls about it he will tell you like because they're the godparents they're his godparents we drove from the agency we got partway there in evanston where they live and we were like what the fuck is happening and so we just like stopped and we went in and there's additionally all this like video and photos of like Milo like on the dining room table in a carrier and all of us just standing around like hi who are you um and we still uh, laugh about it now but anyway um
0: yeah I mean it happened sorry it happened so like that happens so fast like you don't yeah. have the the months of trying to get no. pregnant and then the, the months of gestation, like all that or mental prep, physical baby prep. Baby,
1: food, clothes, a crib, <laughs> a stroller, Yeah, and, and so I think it's just, I'm saying that because that was that real crux moment of um, it was put to me to basically say, either move to New York and take on this director life. I can't believe you just had a baby and, or you're done. I chose, you're done. Because I chose the thing that is more to me than almost anything in my life, which is being a dad, which is everything in the world for me. Um, so, um, and we did it. We built a life. I was one of the. I was directing three shows that season in Chicago, and one of them, my partner actually had written, and was it was in world premiere. And we were, um, I mean, we would just we were in rehearsal, and I would have I was directing with. Milo and a baby Bjorn and Michael would be doing rewrites. We put the actors on a smoke break. They would grab the baby and like the my A.D. would change the diaper and she would take them on the actor break. And Michael and I would do a rewrite and we would come back and do a scene. And then I had Milo, you know, like that was um, that poor kid really grew up in the circus. (laughs) Um, What I think I take from that also, that's important to me. Laurie Eason and I talk a lot about this, but is just this idea of where does misogyny live? You know and I'm saying this as men, but where does misogyny live? Certainly around mothering and, and parenting um, in our field. Where is there, Rachel Spencer Hewitt, the amazing artists in our field that are really doing, has been, have been doing this work for a long time, around how do we advocate in particular for women who are parents? And what does that mean if you're an actor? What does that mean if you're a director? What does that mean if you're a writer? Um, and I really, um, it was very. It was a very interesting couple of years being a dad, an early dad, and trying to navigate that career moment. You know.
0: Well, it, it, if I'm understanding your your sort of um, t- timeline, you not 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 long after that you end up in in Hartford, then, right? How did that feel to come back to Connecticut?
1: Um. <laughs> I was, it was at the end of the two year period. So right when, when I started working there actually when Milo was six months old, um, I, uh, they asked me to come and do, um, it was the 50th anniversary of Trip to Bountiful, of Horton Foote's Trip to Bountiful. And uh, the amazing Michael Wilson, who was the artistic director at the time was, um, we were gonna transfer it down to the alley. And so in that transfer, he needed really a, a, an associate director to come and really take it on and recast and do all the, the rest of the stuff. Um, uh, Cause he was moving a show to Broadway. And that was amazing because that's where I spent my 30th birthday because that was like, oh, it's a great gig and it's really nice. He, all he wants to do is also like talk about new plays. I mean, I'm sort of the director who's doing like Adam Rap and chopping and fucking, but also at the same time, I'm spending my days with Horton Foot. And I would again say that Horton Foot taught me so much of what I know and think about to this day about writing and Uh, But it was at that time that Michael was like, we are thinking about, you know, hiring an Associate Artistic Director again. Tracy Brigham had been there and and left to take over City. And um, one thing led to another. And over that time, I I sort of helped them develop a new play program and then became the Associate Artistic Director and moved there. Um, I was excited about the theater. There were lots of exciting moments. Uh, My colleague, Hannah Sharif, was our intern at the time. And being colleagues with Hannah and Chris Baker and other people there was just extraordinary. Um, I feel like we got to bring in an enormous amount of really amazing artists and started some commissioning programs and uh Luis Alfaro and Jorge cortinas and um, you know, Will Power and lots of amazing people. The last one we did was bringing in Kiara to, to commission her to write Water by the Spoonful. Um, and so in those ways, that felt beautiful and amazing. And Kiara that was also about trying to to help the theater connect with the brilliant and amazing Puerto Rican community in Hartford and around Hartford, um, which not different than many other theaters, hadn't really happened a ton other than the work Eddie Sanchez and a few others had done. And, uh, and John Diaz actually made a big dent in that as well. But in any case, all of that to say, it was really hard to move back to Hartford. Um, there was some, a lot of joy, but it was a very, it was painful.
0: It was painful, but you, you, you talk about a lot of really wonderful things that happened. So it was surprising to me to hear you say that it was painful because you list all these wonderful things that took place when, when you, when you made that move, was it painful to leave Chicago? Was it painful to come back to your, your sort of like homeland and be close to, you know, physically where you were, you know, to the geography of where you were when you were younger?
1: Um... I would say that the purposes of this conversation, <laughs> um, you know, personally, um, yeah, my like my high school time was like super not great. And um, so coming back just was like its own, you know, like, holy crap, I'm moving back as an adult into a place like with a husband and a kid. And oh my God, I think, um, again, I don't single out Hartford in this way, but, um, and I imagine many people have had versions of this experience, but the things I think I thought with the, the concerns or fears I, I had about moving to Hartford, um, but really wrote off as like, right, but we all have like hard childhood. Like, we all, like, being a teenager sucks, like, whatever, you know, like, it's hard. So I, I'm sure I exaggerated a lot of that. Uh, once again, for me personally, the relationship between class and race um, and some stuff that happened while I was there was was very, and queerness and, and all of it was just, it was very, um, I found it really painful personally to, to, it felt not, not like the right place for me. Um, So, um, so, so it's really interesting living in, in the twin cities, especially in the last few years, um, because as some of the questions continue to come up, obviously here in Minneapolis, like I, I don't have to talk to you about what it means that I'm talking to you seven blocks from George Floyd square. That's being dismantled in the last 24 hours to a certain extent. Um, I both feel kind of Horrified and 100% like I'm in the right place. Like, I, that's not a thing I want to dodge. I'm not interested in. I don't want to go to the suburbs. I want to be here. I want to be where I am. And how does that relate to the work I'm doing? Whether it's at the Player Center or as a dad, as a whatever, you know, as a citizen.
0: I see you as somebody who, and now talking to you today and having this conversation with you, it all makes sense because you are, you are, um, a director, you're a dad. You're uh, socially conscious. You are an activist, right? You are you're an advocate, and there are very few jobs, especially in the American theater, where all of those things coalesce into a single position. And that seems like the position that you hold, running the playwright center. Did all of that? Have Happen like do you know do you understand what I'm asking like did you
1: did I walk into a thing that existed because the playwright Center said this is what that position is about we need someone who can do that or we, did I create we need that a one unicorn thing? I think the opportunity for a unicorn was there and I think the unicorn before me it was a pretty amazing unicorn in, in p Carl and I think what Carl led and proposed was pretty awesome in a lot of ways um, so I felt. Comfortable being bold in ideas, um, pretty quickly, um, because I think he had really created a path of like confidence and and also he'd suffered some things and arrows for sure um, and many of them I think are unfair, um, <laughs> most of them I think are unfair, um, uh, and and I think that revolved around misogyny and I think that revolved around sort of gender discrimination and phobia and all of the rest of it in any in any case the path for a unicorn was there the path for a bold thing was there um part of being a different animal is you know trying to behave like a platypus when you're a dolphin is like not really useful because you just like breathe differently and you do different things and you eat different things and you want different things and you know and there is a tension, I think, for the organization, and I would, I would own and hold that tension with you even today, between the fact that because it's such a nationally and internationally facing organization now, um, at the core of it, though, our job is to show up for players and theater makers and, how, and their process and their heart and their emotions and their sustainability and their whatever. Um, and so there is a tension between like the, the sort of very public facing visibility piece of the equation, and also the very like artist-centered, quiet, smaller, um, private piece of it. And I think protecting both of those is really critical. I don't think we can quote unquote kind of grow more publicly without also deeply investing at least as much energy and effort into how we take care of people. I think part of that switch was that I had. I mean, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to say an inspirational thing. None of this really is, but I would say that. Um, through some cynicism of mine, of which there is much about the theater field. I found that there were a lot of ass- assumptions and defaults that didn't make sense to me. And I'm a pretty blockheaded person. So when something doesn't make sense to me, I have to take a second and figure it out. Otherwise I'm not really getting it. And, and some of those were around like, are we fetishizing new play development and are many things being called new play development that have nothing to do with new or plays or development? or playwrights or any of that so it's like it's that program you do about plays you wish you could program but you can't program them on your main stage, so you put them in a festival or it's the relationship I want to build with a playwright but. um, I'll call it a workshop but it's four hours long and i've invited producers and there needs to be a reading at the end of it so don't change a word. and the ranges of what those things are. you know, Oftentimes they're used as like engagement opportunities. Oh, we want to meet a new audience and that somehow like what a playwright does to make a play and a, building a new marketing uh, effort audience, you know, like is the same thing. Like, oh, they're not always the same thing. So for me, I think I came to Playwright Center trying to figure out if I could just center the humans, if we were an artist service organization rather than a sort of art service organization, and everything funneled from that idea, what would that mean? And I wasn't the first to think of it. And I wasn't certainly the first at the player center to enact that. But I for me in my own thinking, and sort of just naming contextually, that was a that clarification became really critical. Because now pretty much everything we do is like, cool, Was that serving their entire humanity? We talk about at Player Center a lot, sustain, develop, connect. These are sort of the three areas, generally speaking, that we work with playwrights on their lives. And so development is a piece of that puzzle for sure. We make about 70 plays a year, but it's not the only piece of it. And it's not always the most important piece of it.
0: Was there anything that you, looking back, uh, that you, when you first started in this job that you thought you might do, or that might happen that, that, that didn't maybe rightfully. So maybe you were, maybe you didn't really, uh, know what you were getting into
1: yeah I didn't know what I was getting into I totally didn't I mean I look back now to that person I was then and what I said yes to and I was like oh snap that's a different thing than I and it's not it wasn't like they were transparent or something I just mean I wasn't not me I wasn't um I'm also such a like I want to show up in the community and like learn the community a minute and really listen so I just did a ton of listening like in my interview process, there like actually wasn't much of a playwright component. And I was like, may I please, May you please put me in a room with as many players, invite anyone to come into a room and we will sit in a circle. And they can ask me things. I can ask them things. Can we just do a thing where I, we just talk? And I knew a lot of them, of course, going into it. And I'd be like, how you doing, what's going on here? And they were like, great, can we talk? And it wasn't really about the Playwright Center so much as an organization, it was like, what does it mean for me as a writer in my own existence of humanity right now? And I was really able to, I mean, I can tell you things that were said 11 and a half years ago in that conversation. So that really became kind of the, like, how I went, went into the learning to get to that point, I think. So I don't know what I thought I was gonna do that I didn't do, but I can tell you what I didn't think I was gonna do that I am doing. For sure. <laughs> um, we have been in the Playwright Center building for 42, 43 of our 49 years. And um, it became clear about three or four years ago that for any number of reasons around capacity and, and how we were serving artists and like who were writers and like, wow, the defaults we were still living in in terms of their relationship to space. That it was potentially time to look at. We definitely needed to expand space, at least, and potentially that one of the ways we would do that would be to move. And so, kind of cut to now, and we are moving out of the Playwright Center's home after nearly 45 years, and um, you know, in about a year plus from now, um, and we have bought a new building and we're building a new space. So this is a whole new Playwright Center um, that's coming, and that is incredible. I'm saying that because I never because you know August Wilson wrote four plays in that space. I'm saying that because you know August Wilson wrote four plays in that but like you know I mean mm-hmm. like you don't want to leave that but like Carla and just think about all of the because you know like Naomi Osaka, Daniel Alexander Jones, Joe Mama Jones was born in that space. You know I'm just like I can just tell you all the things that are the dreams of they dreamed me into existence as an artist that um, and that are the storytellers that are my heroes in that way you know um, and. Uh, what we center, have centered in the process is that we will, at the end of the day, my colleague H. Adam Harris and I, um, who's now at South Coast Rep, um, but it still works a bit at the Playwright Center. Um, we have over the past couple of years, but really predominantly in the past year, we will have met with almost 150 playwrights and theater artists to have a deep conversation about the question, how do you want the Playwright Center space to show up for you? And how do you need it to show up for you? And we've had these deep conversations safety, security, how you make your work, lived experience, beloved community, mental health like all of this. And so I'm bouncing to this just to say that, like all of these practices from being on the back of the Dykes on Bikes March, which was my favorite thing every year growing up in the Happy Valley, to being a 48 year old trying to figure out if you were going to decide that space mattered, and of course we're all questioning what the hell space is now anyway, but you could create a space for artists, for theater makers, for people who are gonna generate new work and their collaborators, what would that space be not just now, but flexibly enough so that we're kind of planning for all the future artists or the person that comes after me, for all of the staff that get replaced, all of the artists who are wanting to make work in different ways, with different relationships to the ideas of community around engagement, around all of it. So we're trying to completely change because we're not making a space for audiences and we're not making a space for ticket buyers because we don't sell tickets. We're making a a home for artists. And it's, I'm learning more than I have in my entire life because I have the great, 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 great fortune of getting to pay artists to say, hey, can I have a conversation with you about what would be helpful for you?
0: I love this. The thing I've been thinking about as you were talking, uh, you mentioned all the amazing plays written in your current space over the past 40 plus years, you know, four August Wilson plays. And and what I'm thinking about is in 40 years from now, imagine all the work people will be able to look back on in the new space that doesn't exist yet that was created there, that was born there. Shifting to your uh artistic artist self is the, do you have any do you have any dream projects you want to you want to make
1: oh my god not as um, an
0: administrator that you're trying to <laughs> birth through the pwc but your own
1: i have a really cool play that i was co-commissioned to write with my writing partner dipika and um that kind of culminated in its Draft kind of right before COVID, so I'm excited to see where that heads in the world. And I think she and I are trying to figure all that out. I'm writing a book. I'm writing an older YA book, um, and I owe some uh, draft at the end of this summer, so that is exciting. And um, and it's interesting because I can't figure out. I'm really. I mean, I'm talking to you in a moment of real, for as as it is for so many of us, about questions of practice and what does that look like going forward and. Uh, Oh, my God. I can't tell you what it would be like to be in a theater in tech with designers I love and actors I love and stage managers I love and crew that I love calling. I would love to call. I would love to be in a cue sequence. Like, I can't even tell you. I just I'm totally one of those people that like during COVID listened to those. It wasn't like ASMR, but it was like stage managers on YouTube, like calling cue sequences. And I, I would sob. I was like. That for me is so emotional because it's the making of the gift, right? Like all these brilliant people that you get to bring together. That's why I love directing, because you get to bring amazing people together and realize their challenge them to realize their amazingness together and a, a gift for people that you're giving away. That is just awesome to me. So I miss Q sequences. Um it's interesting to think about. I um, my family's gone through some pretty intense medical health crises with my son in the past couple of years. And so as that's you know continuing to shift and change and evolve, it became clear to me that the my practice might to shift and change as I became much more of a primary caregiver. Um, and writing kind of came out of it, and it and it and it was just like it was like revisiting a friend that I tucked in a closet that said, hey, "Hang out there, I'll either see you sometime or never." Um, and I think obviously my own deep insecurity about the fact that I spend I I am fortunate enough to have a day job that where I'm surrounded by brilliant art makers, theater writers all the time, making amazing stuff all the time. So I never, um, I don't even know that it's about playwright, but it is, it is, I am, it's been a nice few, I've written some things over the last three or four years, and it's been a really joyful experience to be a bit more of a generative artist than a responsive artist. Um, It's way scarier, it's way, 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 way scarier Um, I don't know how writers do it. God help you all. Um, But I feel also like it's opened me up to a different level of vulnerability. And so that like how I approach that either as a director, as a dramaturg or just in conversation with writers, the the dirt under their fingernails just feels a bit more visceral to me. Um, Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. I just like, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm gonna, the horse is, hanging out walking in directions so you know say hi to a horse
0: (laughs) that was the wonderful jeremy cohen you should support everything he does if you're a playwright Look up all the great opportunities the Playwright Center offers, both in terms of submission opportunities, as well as the awesome playwright support programs they offer. And always keep eyes open for Jeremy's directing work. The subtext is brought to you by America Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. Thank you, as always, to Rob Weiner-Kent, Editor-in-Chief. Thank you to Associate Producer K.J. Jarbo, who edited this episode. The music is by Daryl Panza. The theme song for the subtext is from International Pen Pal. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Nurture by Jonna Adams. I love Jonna's plays, and I know for a fact you will too. I recently picked up a couple of them from Original Works Publishing.